<laughs> Welcome to the Elixir Roundtable with Dockyard. Um, this is a, a podcast where the tables are very round, always round. Today, we're going to be talking about a couple different topics. Uh, first off, Zach is going to talk to us about uh, some feature flags and how we use those in applications. So, Zach, you're up. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so... Over the past like month or so, I've sort of uh, started on this journey of learning more about uh, feature flags and uh, what they are, how to use them, and how to plug them into uh, Phoenix and Elixir application. Um, and so, just kind of setting a little a little context around like how I sort of ended up being interested in taking a look at this stuff um, on. My most recent client project, um, we're uh, significantly increasing the, uh, the size of the development team. Um, and we're also sort of transitioning from a, you know, a team that was very small with some of the sort of founders creating the code base to more, uh, how can we have uh, maybe two or three times engineers now uh, contributing to the code base effectively. Um, and so I was sort of looking into you know, what are potential solutions that we can find that can help allow these sort of founders to begin to step away from the code base a little bit and maybe take on more of the like leadership roles as a company grows um, and transition the the rest of the team into uh, contributing uh, you know safely and productively to the code base. I thought that one of the nice things, like one of the ways that we could sort of get towards that would be to um, we want to reduce risk at all these different touch points throughout the development process. Um, you know, we want to make merging PRs uh, as low risk as possible. We want to make deploying code lower risk, and we want to make releasing features uh, lower risk as well. Um, all of those things can, you know, help uh, engineers feel more empowered to make changes and make contributions, and also to help leaders begin to step away uh, from, you know, the previous roles where maybe they were uh, needing to check on every pull request or something like that before uh, code could go through. They can feel safer that. Uh, there won't be, or there's a much lesser chance of there being consequences uh, to, or negative consequences when you know, merging or moving things forward, then they can help uh, you know, sort of step away a little bit. So the solution that I sort of landed on is leaning more into uh, eventually a more like trunk-based development and sort of feature flag flow for um, you know, developing features and releasing things. And I started tinkering with a library called Fun with Flags, uh, which I can share a little a little demo uh, that I put together with that for um, a little personal project of mine. Essentially, Fun with Flags gives you a nice little. Um, I can share my screen now and sort of describe what I've been getting at on the. Right side of the screen is a, uh, a nice little sort of bootstrap UI uh, dashboard that Fun with Flags offers. Uh, gives you the ability to create new flags. You can toggle things on and off. Uh, and then on the left side is a, uh, a little project that I put together to help me with my fantasy football uh, draft this year. I, I'm four and six, so I'm not sure it worked that well, but I had a good time building it. And so, uh, just a little sort of demo of, of what I'm talking about. Um, I have two two flags here. One's called player search. The other is enable maintenance mode. 
And this application on the left is, uh, it's one big live view right now. Uh, so you can see uh, maintenance mode is currently disabled, but if I wanna enable maintenance mode, uh, the live view is subscribed to a, a PubSub that Fun with Flags is sort of publishing uh, feature flag updates. And so when I click enable, uh, we've now updated to being in, in maintenance mode on the left. And if I click disable again, now it's back. And so this is sort of the path that I started uh, exploring uh, with, uh, with feature flags. Uh, we can also you know, target uh, which particular users can, uh, can view them. And I think I probably will pause for a moment because I've said a lot of things. And there's some other stuff I could talk about, but I'm curious if any of y'all have sort of thoughts or questions that you want to dig into a little bit. I think that uh, the context you put this in is very interesting where you've got a team that's growing and you're trying to make way for more people to contribute and do that more smoothly. Uh, Mike has, has put a lot of thought into the sort of things that make that work. And maybe we can come back to some of those things later uh, if, if, if you want to do that. I, I definitely think that having long running branches is super painful. You know, like I think the ideal lifetime for a branch is like a day or two, maybe. <laughs> and like merge that thing, because the longer you keep it open, the more breaking changes pile up underneath it and people are making conflicting work. So I, I think the idea of being able to merge things and have future flags is is great. I haven't haven't actually used them a whole lot myself, or at least and and the usages the usages that I've had have been pretty simple, kind of like just a boolean, but there's definitely more that that library can do. Um, and I think my initial thought when I heard that there was a library and there's even like commercial services for feature flags is like, why do you need a service or a library for a Boolean flag? <laughs> like just put an if in and, <laughs> but there's, there's a lot more to it. Yeah, definitely. It's sort of, um, it's definitely been a bit of a Pandora's box as I've started learning a little bit about it. Um, because you start thinking, yeah, like it's just a, it's a true false toggle. Can I just have like a, a config file that, we pull some stuff from, and then you know, and then we can make things appear and disappear. Um, but these more fully featured um, solutions like give you a whole bunch of other tools, and it kind of lets you shift away from maybe a sort of like feature factory kind of mindset where you just need to like build the thing and roll it out to something that lets you really like on a more granular level, manage the way that features are released and exposed in your application. You know, one example is you, you can do things like a percentage-based rollouts. Um, so maybe you uh, have a feature flag that you only want to evaluate to true 10% of the time or for like 10% of users. Um, you can roll out a new feature to 10%, make sure that you're not getting any more bug reports or there's not like a crazy uptick in, um, in like your error logs. And then as you feel more comfortable with a feature being rolled out, you can slowly increase that percentage until you're up to 100%. Um, or you can configure uh, kill switches in feature flags. Uh, maybe you have a, a third party like integration that you're working with that can sometimes be flaky. And rather than having your support team have to always deal with you know, messaging when like this third party integration goes down, uh, you can have a flag that just turns off that feature uh, while the, uh, your integration just isn't working. You could also 
if you're maybe testing a new uh, database query uh, for maybe performance or something like that, you could have a feature flag that um, you know 10% of the time or whatever we pivot to this other uh, query uh, in the database, and um, then you can check your your database usage and see like is it going up, is it going down, and you can kind of slowly test in production to see uh, how some of these uh, how your you know system is behaving. What's up, Rockwell? Hey, Rockwell here. Uh, <laughs> we forgot to do intros at the beginning. Could you talk a little bit about? Do you like? Do you have any concerns around sort of pushing the complexity of feature flags sort of down to like the engineering side of things? Where like even now you don't have long running branches, but now you have like long running if statements sprinkled throughout your code everywhere. And I can imagine for complicated features or features that are intertwined with each other that the sort of truth table of uh i don't know things you have to t different conditions you have to test to make sure everything plays together nicely that that seems like a real concern for me and i don't know i know this is you're just kind of exploring this right now but i didn't know if you'd given that any thought yeah i can there's definitely the temptation to initially feel like it's a bit of like a silver bullet because like yeah, you can say a lot of really awesome things about what we can do when we have this like uh, real-time flexibility to toggle stuff on and off. Yeah, it's definitely one of the trade-offs that uh, it's you have to be very disciplined in how these things are managed. Um, I think some things that could potentially be done to mitigate that is to set up a, a good set of conventions around how feature flags are named. You know, perhaps the team has a couple of different categories of flags. Maybe they have, you know, uh, permanent operational flags that it would be something like uh, like the third party integration kill switch type flag. Um, there could also be probably the most popular one or most common one would be temporary flags that would be used to do like develop some feature behind this flag. Um, and then it's you know the team's responsibility to go back in and remove that eventually uh, once the code has been rolled out. I saw that it could be, you know, it could be useful to add a like a date timestamp into the flag names. So that way, maybe a, a flag would read like TMP underscore like year, month, day, and then the flag name. Uh, so that way, you can, you know, at a glance in the code base, get an idea of how old some of these flags are. I know that you know some more mature, uh, like sort of enterprise tools for feature flags offer like. Uh, other features for you know keeping track of how many times a flag has been evaluated and what values it's been evaluated to. So you can look at statistics and see like this flag has been out for three months and it's evaluated to true a hundred percent of the time. So we probably can remove it now. Uh, and that kind of insight is things that you can get. It definitely, let's see to your point about all of these if statements, you know, I definitely wouldn't recommend having like if some huge block and then else some other huge block of stuff. And, you know, I think us working largely in Elixir, we're pretty comfortable either like pattern matching on different functions or having like uh, if flag, then do, you know, uh, this one implementation or do this other implementation and have that stuff abstracted out into, into functions. I think there's ways that the complexity can be managed, um, but it definitely would take some discipline and, and practice. Um, I'm curious to kind of, you know, bump into some of that friction that I'm sure will exist and then kind of working through it. Um, but I think there's a balance and, and, you know, good solutions to be found. 
I was reading the documentation on Fun with Flags, and I I thought it was really interesting that they have this. Uh, there's something called percentage of actors. There's a percentage mm-hmm. of time and a percentage of actors, and the percentage of actors, uh, they make the point that you can, uh, they they have a deterministic way of doing this. So you can set up this uh, protocol thing where, like, a user it can determine its ID and like hash it basically, and then turn that to a percentage and then be like, okay, everybody up above a certain percentage is gonna see this uh, so that it's repeatable, it's, it's predictable just based on the characteristics of that user. I thought that was a really, uh, just a cool little engineering tidbit. Yeah, the uh, the docs for Fun With Flags for me definitely got a little bit dense trying to read through all the different, the ways to understand um, the sort of priorities of, of filtering through these gates for determining whether stuff is true or false is is definitely a, a bit of a brain teaser. But I, yeah, I think I'm starting to internalize it a little bit. That's really cool um, that it has a different backing storages it can use and it can cache the stuff in ETS so that it's not hitting the database every time you're evaluating a feature flag and it can like sync the that stuff between nodes. So there's a lot to it. Uh, and 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 it, you know it seems like it's really working to be performant. Yeah, I think another another piece that I um, that I think is interesting and valuable out of this was uh, I've also been thinking about how can we incorporate uh, the QA team into this process as well. I think there's w- one direction could be you know setting up dedicated like a bunch of uh, CI and DevOps type stuff to set up QA environments that we can spin up for different uh, feature branches and then the QA team can test those different things and we can eventually get approval and merge those into you know the develop branch or something like that. But then the other option is if we have you know, maybe a QA group or uh, a QA person knows what their user ID is or they know what the various user IDs are that they want to test features on. Um, if we just have, you know, say a staging or even the production environment, the QA individual could turn on the features just for themselves. And, you know, there's much less uh, DevOps overhead if we're able to uh, turn on these flags and test in uh, less environment. You definitely have to be a little more disciplined too about where you're deciding where to put things, right? Because now you have to make a decision when you're putting in a flag is this is this actually like an application config like things you wouldn't probably wouldn't want to put in feature flags api keys right or like um uh things that are specific to your environment that you're deployed in or um just any things that sort of like we typically think of as config i feel like it could be really enticing to just throw in a feature flag because like oh we could just change it anytime you don't want to go too far down that path, right? Like you still want, you got to separate. Like, I feel like if you just keep the feature flags as, think of them as feature flags and don't think of them as just this meta repository of information, right? That would really distill down if you ended up just throwing everything in there. Because at the end of the day, it's just a row in a Postgres table, right? Yeah, definitely. I think it's a, um, yeah, especially starting out, like my plan is to like start really small uh, with like a few things that we can you know make sure it works, and then once we start reaching maybe for like more complex use cases, and that's kind of a signal to like maybe look into um, you know paying for a more premium version of like management for this stuff. Yeah, you definitely would want to be careful. I think that you know overextend. Can you talk about like what kinds of projects 
might you want to use this on? Because it seems like it wouldn't be a fit for every project. Or, or just give my my thoughts on like when you're dealing with a really public facing, uh, like on the market uh, e-commerce site or something like that, you might want to roll out a feature to a certain percentage of users and see if it you're kind of A/B testing to see if it increases sales or something like that. I, or, or maybe roll it out to your power users first or something like that. For something like an internal application or like a work uh, um, a workflow kind of tool within a company, I think you you probably are able to communicate with people more and you might even be able to tolerate more downtime. And, and so like the, the dynamics there might be different. You might not need something like feature flags in a situation like that. What, what, do you, what sort of criteria are you, are you thinking through if, like when this is a fit? Yeah, I think I think that's a really really good point. Uh, sorry if there's a little background noise. Yeah, I was thinking. So a lot a lot of projects that I've worked on have been either uh, like internal projects or not or haven't rolled out uh, to a production base yet. And um, yeah, those are kind of situations where you don't have to think about sort of managing features that are like live out in the environment as much. Um, I think. You're able to look at something from the perspective of, um, yeah, do we have like a, a user base that's looking at the thing, or are we going to have like a set of features that we want to manage? Uh, then that's when, um, you know, feature sites can, can help out with that. If it's, you know, like an admin tool where we just need to like build the thing and it's a much smaller uh, user base that you might have a, a direct relationship with, then um, it might not be as necessary. Do we want to talk a little more generally about sort of the transition that the team is going through and, and like the sort of uh, like startup to enterprise transition? Mike, you've you've spent some time thinking about that before. Um, it sounds like that's a decent description of where y'all are at, Zach, sort of moving from a, a startup team to being a more enterprise style team. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, one of the key things is, well, the word enterprise, I and it gives me pause a little bit, but a because um, I think one of the main goals that we have is still to uh, we want to remain a, a product focused team, um, and we want you know engineers to be able to speak to all different aspects of the product and not um, feel siloed and just working on like their piece and just focus on like shipping their features. And so, but we definitely yeah we need to set things up to have a, a development team that can you know scale and grow more uh, than. With the the small nimble startup kind of mindset. Yeah, I, I think the word enterprise often carries negative connotations of like bloated, horrible software and bureaucracy and and things like that. But um, I think like uh, just I sort of was reflect, reflecting on this some of the stuff after talking with Mike uh, a while back about how just the differences between like the scrappy one or two person team versus when you have a bunch of people, and that's one of that's that's really the the difference you're dealing with when you've got uh, when you've got a new product and you've got one or two people working on it, for for, for one thing, the product is basically worthless at that point, right? So, it, it, at the beginning, like you've, when you've got one user, like if you take the thing offline, nobody's hurt. <laughs> uh, and and you know, so you can change things. You don't really need to communicate with people. You can use hacks because you're the only person that needs to understand them. There's a lot of stuff that you can do and kind of play fast and loose. But as you get customers then you start having a stake in having the thing continue to work. So you're like, oh, now I need to have like 
not so much downtime or maybe no downtime when I deploy. And maybe I need to do work in a way that other developers can understand because I need help from other developers. And you have to start scaling up the team. Like your data becomes a valuable business asset. You know, things things change. So you have to like move a little slower and be a little more cautious because you don't want to break the really valuable product that's actually paying paying for the company now. You know, I, I, some of the things that that come in for that are things like feature flags, um, more careful data migrations, which is something that I don't think a feature flag can really help you with. Or you sort of have to do that in concert. Like we're going to do this migration over a period of over several different deploys, so that nothing is ever <laughs> irreversibly broken until we're sure that we're going to do it this way. Um, PR review, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, all those kind of practices come in as you grow, um, just because you have more value in the thing that you've made, and you and you need to protect that value. Yeah, that's a great point. Having worked on yes, yeah, some projects with with Mike that he set up, I feel like um, at least one of the things that I really liked was you know we had a a script that we always ran after we pulled things uh, down from uh, the develop branch. Uh, you know it would wipe our database, it would run all of the seeds. And this way, every engineer was always starting from the same fresh slate every time they were doing stuff. And we really had much less, um, you know, that like subtle deviation in people's environments that happens over time, uh, just by the nature of like, uh, you know, code development and our computers are kind of organic in this weird way. But my kind of helping us align on like, this is the starting point for everyone always uh, is one of like the really helpful things. and. Um, yeah, Mike, I wonder if like there's other things that you've done or stuff that you think about that kind of helps uh, get at that sort of, you know, larger team alignment. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, like I said, the, the, the script that uh, we ran uh, after after pulling main or, or develop or whatever uh, branch, uh, yeah, that just, and, and that, that started, that actually started back when on the, on the Cars project, that was uh, where, where I first did that. And there's just so many different things like, you know, making sure that basically that, that script grew from people running into issues uh, when they tried to uh, update or a new developer coming in, you know, like the version of NPM wasn't right. And so actually running a check that um, will fail um, if you don't have the right version, um, you know, automatically running uh, ASDF install. So if we change the uh, version of Elixir we're running, the next, you know, as soon as you pull that, you'll it'll build and and, and uh, start running the the latest version. Uh, hex, uh, we ran into some issues. Um, there was like a bad version of Hex at one point. There's some there's some issue with Hex, and so having uh, Hex install in that script was was good because that made sure that everyone had their, the latest version. Um, yeah, just just uh, yeah, like I said, and it, it just grew over time from from things that people ran into. So I did mention in my in the, the Veeps talk that uh, I should I'll probably put a um a blog post out kind of detailing some of those those things uh over the next month or so. Uh, but yeah there's there's all sorts of stuff you can do there that will help. I like I like several of the use cases that you pointed out for this Zach. I hadn't thought about something like like A B testing a database query. That's a really interesting concept. So definitely some some cool use cases to think through yeah i'm definitely uh 
excited to kind of keep exploring and kind of see where this goes. I feel like there's a lot to learn and a lot to practice. Zach, are you tracking that out as a uh, as a library, or is this just something that's on the client project at the moment? Well, the Fumba Flags thing already is is a library that I'm using. There's not a um, so I would I would probably hope to like start with using using that because it seems pretty fully featured and pretty solid. Um, it you know even it has like solutions for a dis more distributed system if we were ever to move towards that. Um, I'm not trying to think about solving that problem right now because it's not one that is that we have at the moment. And then I would use like if we started reaching for like all the like percentile rollouts or a lot more complex features that it has, uh, then to me that's kind of a, a signal that we can maybe benefit from um, you know paying for a more fully featured solution that can do a lot of that stuff. Um, but I think like that sort of evaluation is a is a decent bit away. And then I've been thinking a little bit about you know how to actually implement this in a project. Um, so in a sort of proof of concept that I that I put together on a client project, um, it uses fun with flags, but I set it up using um, you know, the the a behavior and the adapter pattern. Uh, so the the actual like fun with flags code only exists in one file, and everywhere else in the code base we're calling like you know. Uh, feature flags dot enabled, uh, which is our own module for that. So ideally in the future, it will be uh, able to be easily swapped between different implementations if we wanted to go that direction. Oh, that's great to build that seam in. That's, that's a really solid strategy. Yeah, and then, in a, then since it follows the same pattern as testing all of our other behaviors with mocks, um, so you know, with working with tests, if you need to make sure a flag evaluates to whatever you would like, it, uh, it follows, you know, a really similar path uh, that we do elsewhere. Uh, so it should help, you know, lower the sort of uh, cognitive load to understanding how to work with that stuff. Yeah, and this library looks really cool uh, and it can do a lot. But if somebody's thinking about, uh, I have a use case for like a simple use case for a feature flag where I want to be able to merge this feature but I also want to be able to turn it off if something is going wrong or or whatever. I mean, there's always the option for simple use cases just really grown. You don't always have to use a library for something if your if your use case is simple enough. You might be able to get away with just an if statement and and you know set that to use uh, the application env uh, in Elixir so that you can you can toggle that at runtime and you're good to go. Um, so. This is a va I think the the concept of feature flags is very useful and versatile, regardless of which implementation you end up going with. I feel like the uh, this is also a really good use case for the persistent term module that Erlang provides because that's you know even better performance than than ETS and uh, you know it's it's a you're reading it often you're writing it very infrequently, and so uh, I think that would be. Uh, that's a, that's a kind of good middle ground between like an application config, which is pretty static, and like a Nets table or Postgres or a Gen Server or something like that. The application uh, when you read uh, application get env application module, I, I believe that's actually backed by a Nets table underneath. So it is it's, it's equivalent to reading from a Nets table. Persistent term could be a great fit here. Um, you have to read some of the warnings about what what effect it does have when you update something, but uh, 
given that you're going to be reading it a lot and writing it infrequently, that might might be a good tool. Anything it's else on good, this topic? This is a good time for our sponsor. <laughs> Are we going to do this? <laughs> All right, let's do it. <clears throat> yeah, I'm second. I get. I got to get ready. The sponsor paid us a lot of money. This podcast is brought to you by Smithyton's Mustache Repellent. Are you hounded by a disembodied mustache? Do its bristly slitherings haunt your dreams? Try Smithyton's Mustache Repellent. Guaranteed to repel mustaches of up to two feet in length, Smithyton's Mustache Repellent is the safest and most powerful repellent available without a prescription. Available in three refreshing scents, cinnamon, fresh cotton, and curry powder. Order yours today. Yeah, I don't think that business is going to stay around too long. I got to set up my Amazon subscription for that <laughs> and get my monthly delivery. <laughs> Subscribe and save. <laughs> yeah, save 15%. Who's getting curry powder? All right, thank you for humoring me. Uh, <laughs> the other topic that I wanted to talk about, uh, just just to, pretty much just to put a link in the show notes because it's cool is um, PJ Ulrich, I guess is how you say the name, has a really cool gist that uh, um, we have uh, up on GitHub. Um, sorry, not we. It's, it's not ours. PJ Ulrich has posted this gist. It's big o time complexities for Elixir data structures. Nathan, if um, you fork it, it can be yours. <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, it's it's an analysis of, uh, like, for example, the map structure in Elixir. Access time is O of log n. Search of, is O of log n. Insertion is O of n if it's less than 32 elements, and O of log n if it's more greater than or equal to 32 elements. It goes through, you know, list and, and, uh, and so on. And as I came over from uh, Ruby to Elixir, I had spent some time in Ruby thinking about how hashes work. I actually gave a talk a while back, uh, quite a while back. <laughs> I think it was 2008 or I don't know. Anyway, I gave a talk uh, years ago about, um, no, that was 2014, about how hashes work internally. Um, the hash data structure, or known as a map in some languages, or a dict, that, you know, the key value data structure. In languages with mutable data, that's essentially implemented using a, an array underneath, uh, so that you have uh, it translates your key to an integer, and that way you can hop straight to that spot in the array, which is random access straight into memory to that spot. And then when you update it, you go straight to that memory spot and just replace it. But because we have immutable data in Elixir, they have to do things differently. So the performance characteristics are slightly different on Elixir maps. I spent a little time reading about that recently because I had always been curious about how they work, especially, especially like the ability to update a map and not have to build an entirely new map in memory. I was like, how does that work? Because <laughs> you can imagine with a linked list, if you add an element to the beginning, like each element in the linked lists, um, just it has a pointer to the next element. So if you want to add a new element to the beginning, you just have a new element that points to the original first element, and your variable points to the new head, and you're done. That's really simple. But if you want to add something to the end, it's a whole different thing. You have to, you have to make a new last element to point to 
the additional element and you have to make a new second to last element to point to the new last element all the way back up. And the gist of how maps work in Elixir for at least the larger than 32 elements is that it's like a tree of those kinds of structures. So if you change anything in the map, it has to do that walking back and fixing everything all the way to the top element up that branch of the tree, but all the other branches can be left alone. So that it's it's just fine. Like this doesn't necessarily have a lot of practical <laughs> consequence in most cases, but it's super interesting to learn about. Um, and I I was just super impressed at this um, this just going through uh, map and list and keyword list and tuple and um, and also did y'all know that there's an Erlang array module? I I didn't know this until today. I can't believe I didn't know this. <laughs> uh, there's an Erlang array module that um, is uh, it. Well, I mean, we use lists in Elixir as kind of arrays, and like tuples as kind of arrays. Does it satisfy that need with an Erlang? Yeah. So tuples are kind of are are like arrays in the sense that you have, I believe you have. Well, you know what? It, I'm sure it says on this page. Yeah, so access is O of 1. So if you say, give me the third element, it can hop straight there. It knows how far to go in. If you want the third element in a list, you've got to start at the first element and walk to the second element and walk to the third element. Uh, so it's O of N. And o, uh, and, a, and a tuple, it knows, like, oh, it's going to be like three memory addresses away and just hop there to that pointer or whatever. So tuples... Wow, you know it's it's got, uh, it's, got it's got the uh, the analysis for tuples here, and it's got insertion and deletion. You know, I I never see anybody inserting or deleting tuples. There are functions to do that in the module, but I always just see them as like you build it once and you never mess with it. It's um, interesting because the the, the um, documentation says that. Yeah, as you would expect, you can have them as fixed sides, or can grow automatically as needed. But with immutability, I assume it's not growing the existing data structure. It is just copying into a new larger data structure when you're trying to, quote unquote, grow it. That's my yeah. assumption. I have no idea. Yeah, I, I, would think, I would think that it's doing that, but whenever possible, sharing aspects of the existing structure similar right. to... Right. I mean, what it could... Maybe internally for performance, it could be relying upon the, if it's going to grow, if it's a linked list, right, then it could just be um, uh, copying, because you're going to assign it to a new variable. So it's not going to, it's not like you're violating the immutability in the previous, I mean, I'm totally guessing here. So if someone else could say, no, you're wrong, my best guess would be that the previous variable has that smaller list as the uh, range, memory range of values for the uh, fixed size array. And if you were to grow it, it gets assigned to a new variable in Erlang. So you're not uh, violating immutability on the previous variable. And that uh, memory range um, is not necessarily memory copied. It's just that now you have an extension on how many more elements you want to grow the array by. Uh, for for performance optimization reasons. So you're still referencing without the ability to change what's in memory, uh, what's there for read-only purposes. Or it could just be doing a mem copy. Not sure. 
It says here in yeah. that gist that uh, an array is a try of small tuples with a smaller memory overhead to lists. So to me, that sounds similar to how the map is implemented, where it's a... Right, right. You know, that, that gives it the login uh, complexity for well, all of the operations here. Yeah, you know, I had a, I actually hadn't noticed the analysis on array here, but I, I had as in following some links from this, I had found uh, this library called I guess it's it's AJA, I guess it's AJA. I want to say AHA because it's you know Spanish, I don't know. But uh whatever it is, it has some additional data structures that aren't built into Elixir and one of them is a, a vector which it says is similar to array, but um I thought it was implying that array had constant time access because it says that it does for vector constant time random access, constant time appends, constant time length checks. So um, the Aja library is also very interesting. It's got um, a few additional functions for stuff like string. It's got an ordered map, and it's got this vector structure. But I, I think it's really cool just to see the different data structures that are available. You've got stuff like lists and maps, but you've also got tuples. You've got this array module. Erlang also has a queue module, which lets you append and uh, and pop from either side of it. So you can have like a, a last a first in, first out queue or a first last in, first out queue. And that can be really handy. It's just neat to see all the data structures available to us, even if we don't typically use them. So the Aja library has code gen i'm going through it real quick I, i'm wondering if they did all this in elixir or if they're using some sort of NIF for you know and they are uh, heading out to sea land or some of the data types that they're implementing the github uh the github repo for it shows languages is 100 percent elixir oh yeah, yeah yeah you're right okay it's because I was in one file and it referred to the C module. Um, and I, I wonder if that's just, I think that's just an alias for the code gen modules that they have. And it looks like they do some compile time, just some macro work in order to potentially get in some of their, um, let's see here real quick. I'm talking while reading at the same time. It's not working for me. <laughs> it's, it's all shut up. But this is interesting. There was some some language I I can't find it now, but some language I was looking at recently. They had the complexity of the operations just in line in the docs. Like it was a first class citizen of the documentation for innumerable things. <coughs> and um, I don't remember if it was Python or if it was Rust. I'm looking through them now. I don't see it. I can't find it now. But I just thought that was so um, I don't know refreshing to see just to have them put that right up front because. It is so important, especially for a standard library where everyone is going to be using it. Right. And I I think this was brought up in our Slack the other day, and somebody referenced a thread somewhere where I don't know if someone on the core team responded or if it was just brought up anecdotally, but it seemed like the uh, consensus was the reason why these may not be in Elixir documentation is because the order of complexity of the underlying functions that Elixir relies upon are really on Erlang's plate. And so aligning that documentation with any changes it make, because you can have different versions of Erlang running the same version of Elixir. 
That being said, it'd be nice maybe if Erlang's documentation had uh, you know, that order in the document. I know that there was. So I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet. And I heard about this years ago. They're, they're actually, I think after Elixir came out and, um, you know, Josie did a good job with getting out this nice looking documentation and command line tools and all this. I know that there was a desire or at least there was discussion of desire on the, uh, on OTP's part of re not necessarily rewriting, but kind of redoing their documentation to uh, not make it look like somebody scanned pages out of a manual and threw it up on the, you know, put it through OCR software and threw it up on the web. And I'm surprised that hasn't happened yet uh, to modernize Erlang's doc, uh, documentation. If that ever does happen, it would be nice to see some of this in there. At that point, you could have Elixir's documentation reference Erlang's original documentation saying like, here's the underlying function we're using. Go check out the order of complexity or the version of Erlang that you're, you, that, you know, you have installed because I mean, I've seen this on several projects now that, you know, Elixir sold itself and it has good reason to do so on its performance characteristics, but just because you're using Elixir, it doesn't, automatically give you amazing performance like you're going to get some out of the box bumps over maybe other uh imperative object oriented languages that you've been using but you still have to obey the laws of computer science in some ways right you know doing many loops is going to be slower than less loops ultimately and so knowing what what you're opting yourself into the underlying functions in Elixir would be important for uh, improving the performance of your application and di- diagnosing, you know, just general performance issues. It reminds me, it's funny because like big O notation is a computer science thing. If you say big O of N, well, everyone knows that's linear time, right? But uh, practically speaking, some N's are bigger than other N's, you know? <laughs> so, that's true. you know, different, yeah, a list of of twelve items might have a the same technically the same performance as a list of a million items, but it doesn't mean it, it doesn't mean it's just as good of a solution. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because I think I've seen a lot of people as they as they discover Elixir, you know, they take what their preconceived notions are coming from other languages and they bring it over, and you can kind of like set a watch to how they're you know evolving their uh understanding of the language as they go and so like the first thing that they you know people always ask for is like how do i pipe into the second argument and that's that's uh you know that's always kind of like the first thing that new elixir engineers ask and then eventually you see people start to discover streams and then all of a sudden it becomes like stream all the things and so there's um there's definitely common themes amongst discovering the language as you go and uh i think that's good but it's also kind of a lesson in you know discipline on ultimately like knowing when to uh when adding the complexity for the sake of performance is worth the trade off it is just sometimes as easy to introduce 
major performance issues in Elixir as it is in other languages. Just because you're using Elixir doesn't automatically mean that it's going to scale like, like crazy. I think that you have an easier time of achieving that scalability in, in the language, but it doesn't protect you from doing dumb things. Yeah, and it's easy to focus on the wrong thing too when you're trying to make something faster. I mean, uh, you know, big O notation is all about as n gets extremely large. <laughs> the, and so like the 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 performance of your map access matters if you're going to have a million keys in there. But if you only are going to have 10 keys, like who really cares? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like yeah. for so so I mean a good example of that is today Sergio uh posted hit source code on a uh um actually it's like a card game or something he's developing elixir to kind of have him learn supervisor patterns and such and i was making kind of anecdotal uh performance optimization uh, recommendations and these things essentially have zero impact upon the actual runtime of his app but i do think that kind of getting in the habit of some of the things is good to know at this microscopic level um, so that when you get to that macro level where they actually can impact. So like the, the recommendations I was making, I think that um, this is another example of where you can kind of, uh, once you start doing a lot of it, you can start to start to treat the world as like nails and like, you know, you always have the hammer is moving stuff over to compile time as opposed to runtime. and. Chris touched on this in his uh, uh, what's the name of his book the ma- the book the macro book the Prague Prague macro book and I think yeah, even meta programming elixir yeah 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 so if I remember there was some sort of like breakaway section in there where I think right at the beginning he kind of says like uh, don't meta program but if you need to here's like 140 pages on how to do it so <laughs> yeah that's not exactly what he says but there's like something to that extent. And the takeaway there is that, you know, you have this power if you need it, um, but you shouldn't overcommit to it and you should not, you know, start to push everything in there. And so, yeah, some things are going to, maybe most things are going to be much faster if they're done at compile time. But what you're really introducing is now the complexity and the overhead around debugging and having to manage that that stuff that's that's over to compile time. And to Rockwell's point, you know, the scope and scale of what you're trying to optimize should probably be taken into consideration first. You know, does it really make sense to uh, optimize something that is, uh, you know, a list of like 10 items? No, of course not. Um, you can get away with just accessing it like normal, especially if it's, you know, some sort of static list. Um, as opposed to if it's 10 million items, like, sure, that's, you know, that's a candidate for optimization. Um, I'm not hinting at anything, but I think Mike may have more to speak about this at the next <laughs> round table. Yeah, we had a, um, we were using an address library in, on a client project recently. And some of the, um, we were using it for populating, you know, drop downs on an address form, pick your country, pick your state, that kind of thing. And the countries, the list of countries is was available at compile time. But as soon as you went one level deeper and you wanted to say, give me all of the you know territories in this country, the states or whatever, uh, it would go to disk, parse a YAML file, and then give you the response. 
and <laughs> yeah and so that's like that was uh noticeably causing lag in live yeah. Yeah. it was bad and so we yeah we just use a little macro to just do all that stuff at, at compile time and yeah it took uh, it, it takes a few seconds to compile that module. You start to get warnings in the compiler, like, hey, things are taking a while. But, yeah. I, you know, I'll take the hit once as opposed to, you know, a thousand people taking lots of little hits later. It's interesting because CountryList has a history around performance issues on the client in multiple uh, presentations. So going back to client-side application development, um, one of the real first performance issues that we noticed around Ember was rendering out select lists with client with countries in them, because there's I don't know what 300 something countries, and so you're having a select list where you are uh, on at runtime building out 300 plus elements, and at that time, uh, Ember's uh, template. This is before HTML bars. If we, I mean, it's handlebars originally. Uh, handlebars was, I believe, it was attaching observers to every single element, and so there was just this massive overhead. And so the, and this kind of also played out in any instance where you had a list of multiple things. So on on the client, um, the uh, there were certain workarounds that also are really being used on um, like native as well uh, for performance reasons. So if you had a list of, let's say a thousand things and you know, that takes a while to render uh, in real time, you know, the idea is do you need to really render out a thousand things or can you calculate what the actual viewport offset is going to be? And then, you know, make the, the scrollable section to that viewport size, and then just render what you have, you know, in that's visible. And then as you're scrolling, you anticipate and kind of have this acceleration towards and say you're going to render the next 10, 10, 10, 10, 10 as you go. Um, <clears throat> I actually don't know uh, if LiveView has hit any of these type of problems yet. Um, it, it's funny how kind of, you know, these things that were uh identified and then not really solved but worked around on the client a decade ago are just again presenting themselves so these are always going to be problems that we're constantly dealing with i think i think the funny thing about computer science like kinds of things and, and trying to optimize performances is, is it's so easy to look at the wrong thing and if you think about the real world analog of that it would be really obvious you know like if you were like delivering some stuff to another state and you were like making a whole separate interstate trip in a truck to deliver one shoebox of stuff and then come back and get another shoebox, you'd be like, clearly we want to put multiple shoeboxes in one trip. <laughs> come on. But that kind of stuff can happen in a computer program and it's not as blindingly obvious that you're doing something so dumb. <laughs> or you can, you can do, um, you can get, focused on something tiny when you're like, oh, I could remove this penny from the bed of the truck and that would make it lighter. Well, technically that would make it lighter, but you might want to remove the piano instead. And it's not easy to see that as easily as in the physical world. So it's so easy to focus on the wrong things when you're not measuring. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
Anybody else got uh, anything else they want to bring up or or add on to what we've been talking about? I like your metaphors. Uh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us on the Elixir Roundtable, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.